Well, please turn, if you would, in your copy of God's Holy Word to the book of Ephesians. Book of Ephesians, you'll note that we are not in our regular series in Luke. Um, Instead, what we will do is we will consider a doctrinal sermon as we receive new members into our body today to understand the doctrine of church membership and why it is that these dear souls have taken this step today. So Ephesians 4, the first 16 verses, and like I said, this will be a bit more doctrinal than usual, uh, at least for the morning service, so um, uh, keep that in mind as we try to understand the doctrine of membership. So, Ephesians 4. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of God. Let us receive them as such. I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, beseech you that ye walk worthy of the vocation wherewith ye are called, with all lowliness and meekness, with long suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism. One God and Father of all, who is above all, and through all, and in you all. But unto every one of us is given grace, according to the measure of the gift of Christ. Wherefore he saith, when he ascended up on high, he led captivity captive, and gave gifts unto men. Now that he ascended, what, now that he ascended, what is it but that he also descended first into the lower parts of the earth? He that descended is the same also that ascended up far above all heavens, that he might fill all things. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we henceforth be no more children, tossed to and fro, and carried about with every wind of doctrine, by the slight of men, and cunning craftiness, whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love, may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. Our Father and our God, we come now to the preaching of your holy word. And we ask, Father, that you would bless your servant who comes to now minister the word of God. We pray that you would bless your preacher who today has uh, uh, even even weaker voice than usual. And so we pray you would uphold him in the preaching of the word, that through this earthen vessel, Father, we would hear the unsearchable riches of Jesus Christ. Give your spirit to the preacher, that they would know it is Christ who speaks. And we pray as well that the spirit of the Lord would be upon all those who would hear the word, that they themselves would hear the good shepherd calling to them. And so, Father, to the glory of Christ, we pray that you would do these things, that Christ would increase among your people. And so let the words of my mouth, Father, and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, my strength and my Redeemer. We ask this for Christ's sake and his glory. Amen. Well, today, many Christians see no need to be joined to the church in official membership. They often float from church to church at their whim, at whatever uh, uh, scratches their itch, so to speak. Or maybe they watch services online, and they never actually join a congregation. But God says in his word that we must not neglect the gathering of the saints, Hebrews 10.25. And don't misunderstand, that is not a loose gathering, friends. That is a close gathering of rich communion together. Even as we consider the Lord's Supper coming in two weeks, we heard uh, many months ago how the Lord's Supper is our joint sharing, our joint communion in Christ at the Lord's table, that we truly share in Christ together. 
And in addition to that, we have many moral duties one to another in the church. The Bible calls us to serve one another in love. We are to edify one another. We are to bear one another's burdens. And we're also to be accountable to under-shepherds who know us as our own elders, as Hebrews 13 and 17 says. <coughs> and so, the principles of Scripture teach us that church membership is not just a good idea, or maybe it's a pragmatic thing to do, but it is a solemn duty of Christ's people. It's one that is vital for our spiritual health and well-being. And if it is honored by us, friends, it will help keep us, by God's help, from going astray. It will help us walk closer to Christ, and it will help us enjoy the bonds of Christian love and fellowship. And so with that, to introduce our theme, our theme is that church membership is a Christian duty. Church membership is a Christian duty. And we'll consider our theme under three heads. First is to discover the source of church membership. Second is to consider the need for local church membership. And third is to consider our duties in church membership one to another. So first, the source of church membership. And we might think too, um, how should I put this, too much like we are an association or a club That's what the church is to a lot of people, a social organism. But its source is really a spiritual reality, that believers are truly bound together spiritually in Jesus Christ. This is no simple club or association. When we are born again from above and we are given saving faith, by the Spirit of God we are grafted into what is called by theologians the mystical body of Jesus Christ. We have a true union, both with Christ as our head, as you heard, and also one with another with his body. Note verses 15 and 16 here. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. There is a a vital union between Christ and believers. Christ is the head and we are the members of his mystical body. So there is a vertical relationship believers have with Christ who is our head, but we also have, and don't miss this, we are not just individually grafted into Christ. In a sense, real sense, there is a horizontal Binding in the body of Christ. We are all joined together, bound by the Spirit of the Lord. Verse 16, you heard it. It says we are fitly joined together in Christ. We are perfectly knit together, beloved. Fitly joined together. And the illustration there, or the picture there should be of you, like you're part of a superbly, finely architected building. Boys and girls, it's not like when you throw, and I have some experience with this, not when you throw random Legos into the bucket, right? That's not what this picture is. There is a wonderful, beautifully architected body, which means, believer, you have your purpose and you have your place in the body of Christ. You were not just thrown into the body randomly. You are not in Christ by happenstance, but the Lord has ingrafted you with purpose. And as grace flows from Christ our head into the body, almost like the the vascular system, right? But instead of the heart and lungs, we're talking about Christ the head. Just like that, every piece and every part contributes to the stability, health, and strength of the body of Christ. (coughs) Such that you hear here that together there is a true increase in grace among the members out of love. And the bond between the members of the body is the great uniting power of the Holy Spirit. The third verse says, of, uh, it speaks of the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Almighty God, the Holy Spirit, binds us one to another. There is a true spiritual union that we share in the Holy Ghost. And the Spirit of the Lord, when we are born again by the Spirit, He creates a spiritual desire in believers, 
to associate and cooperate with one another in love. And so, with these realities, friends, this is the thing we have to take away. A, 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 lack, a lack of desire for union with other believers is a sign that something is terribly awry in our soul. Do you have this desire, beloved, to associate one with another? Let me say our unity in Christ is far greater than that of even a natural family bond. I say this with some measure of of sorrow myself. You know, the Lord has put in my heart a greater affection for you all than I have for my unbelieving family. And that's the way it is because it is the spirit that creates this bond of peace. I do pray that the day comes where my family would believe that we would share such an affection. But, beloved, I have much closer ties with you than my unbelieving friends and family. Look at what we share. Verses 4 through 6 says, There is one body, one spirit, even as you are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. Oh, I wish I could just preach on that verse. But all of us in the church of Jesus Christ share in this unity here. We share one body. We share one spirit, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all. We share the most glorious and weighty bonds of all, beloved. One hope, our sins forgiven by the free mercies of Christ. Heaven opened up for us by the blood of Christ on his cross. The God of heaven itself, three persons in one, is our God. Our Savior, broken and crushed, so that we, without mercy, would receive mercy. Heaven again, opened by his atoning death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. What glorious things the body of Christ shares. <coughs> and what were his ongoing prayers for us? You think of this, we thought about the high priest's work last Lord's Day evening. But what was his prayer for us? That we would be one. Holy Father, Keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as what we are. John seventeen eleven. You know, we share a Savior who prays that our union would be akin to the love the Trinity enjoys. Christ is always praying. He's at God's right hand, even now praying. This is the high priestly prayer. He's praying that his body would draw closer and closer and closer one to another. This is his desire, and this is goal, his, his aim in his work. And so we ask, why is schism? And why is isolation so grievous a sin? It is because it goes against the prayer and work of Jesus Christ. And so the root of church membership is to recognize the spiritual unity of the body in Christ. Now, I'll use a technical term here, and it's important for us to know these distinctions. This spiritual or mystical body of Christ is what we call the invisible church. It consists of all the elect of God. No man can see that number but God alone. Now, you can know you are in it if you have truly received Christ and have saving faith in him. But this is that invisible church where those are are part of Christ's mystical body. But then there is a visible church that we can see that is distinct. There's considerable overlap, of course, but there is a distinction here. And the visible church is composed of those who profess the true religion and their children. The visible church has unbelievers in it. Uh, Jesus says there are goats mixed in with the sheep, right? So what I want to uh, tell you then is that if you do not have saving interest in Christ, Just being part of the visible church, right, will never save you. You must be part of the invisible church. You must repent and have faith in Christ. And you are to close with him today, receive him by faith, and you will be part of the invisible church, which is the church you must truly be a part of. But those in the visible church, those who've made a profession of faith, and their children are given a sign here to mark them out of the world. And that sign is baptism. Listen to the text again. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. 
See, baptism marks a visible boundary of those who are part of the visible church. Uh, you think, go back to Acts 2.41. We read that they that gladly received his word were baptized. And then in verse 47, we see its connection to the church. They were added to the church. So you see this, you profess the faith, you are baptized, and you are added to the church. And that's why we perform baptism in a church service. So if you profess the faith, then you must be baptized to mark yourself as part of Christ's church. Now, I want to deal with this because we're about to have a, um, uh, a young child join the church very soon, too. Uh, not only are believers baptized, and this child has been baptized already, but their children are, too as part of the visible church. That's easy to see in the household baptisms in the book of Acts. In Acts 16.15, after Lydia believes, her whole household is baptized. And when she was baptized and her household. That theology is also in 1 Corinthians 7.14 that says the child of even one believer is holy. They are set apart. They are part of the church. Even think about our epistle, right? Ephesians 1.1 says that this is addressed to the saints which are at Ephesus to the saints which are at Ephesus. <clears throat> and then you think about it, if you flip one page over to Ephesians 6, verse 1, who was addressed as the saints at Ephesus? Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. And so you see that the saints at, among the saints at Ephesus are counted the children. And so boys and girls, that's why I address you often when I preach. You are members of the visible church. And your duty is to understand two things. One, that your baptism does not save you. And second, that your duty is to make sure your baptism signifies a cleansed heart. To receive Christ for yourself. To make sure that the external sign reflects an inward reality. And that's why we constantly exhort you children, be saved. Convert to Christ if you haven't already. Believe the gospel and be Closed with Christ. And again, that's why you will see soon a child join her parents, and she will not come, uh, wait to come into membership. She will actually come into membership. She will be under the protection, government, and oversight of this church and its elders. What did Christ say? Suffer the little children to come unto me and forbid them not. Why? For of such is the kingdom of God. The church itself is helped to be defined by the little children, Mark 10, 14. And so, with that said, there is a church visible. And this church is global. In the old days, we would call it Catholic, until the Roman Catholics, of course, took that on themselves. But it is universal, in other words. It's a universal, visible church that spans all across the globe of everyone, every single one, whether they're uh, in the remotest tribe of Africa or in New York City. Everyone that professes the name of the Lord, who professes that Christ is their hope, them and their children are part of the visible church. But this visible church has regional assemblies, and it is our duty to become uh, uh, associated and members of those. So let's consider that as our second head, the need for local church membership. Now, I have to deal with a, a finer point of theology here. Membership in a local church does not make you a member of the visible church, right? Uh, Congregationalists made that error. Presbyterians do not hold that. But what we say, on the other hand, is that those in the visible church who have professed Christ have a moral duty to join a local geographic church. That's uh, That's the case that's being made. For instance, the apostle wrote to the church at Ephesus in this epistle. The saints are attached to a local body at Ephesus. They knew they belonged to that church, and the church knew that they belonged to it. And in other epistles, he wrote to the saints joined to Rome, Philippi, Corinth, and other places. And so individual congregations of the universal church exist in regions. And what defines the boundary then, beyond geography, of a local congregation? Well, our text Uh, implies something here. It is defined by its own local office bearers. Note verses 11 through 12. He gave some apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints, 
for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. So there are officers that are set apart for the work of the ministry and edification of a local geographic uh, subset of the body of Christ. Now the apostles and prophets are gone. They were part of the foundation of the church. You could look at Ephesians 2.20 to see that. But today, elders remain. And they are ordained, elders are ordained to every local congregation. And that's what makes a local congregation. You notice that in our church planting endeavors, we do not create a particular church until we have at least two elders in that church. Um, That's because in Acts 14.23, you read, after exhorting the disciples that they must enter the kingdom through much tribulation, I think that's worthy of some meditation, they ordain them elders in every church. Every church is defined by having local ordained elders. And so what I'd like you to do then as we consider the implications of this is turn to Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews chapter 13, so just a few pages probably over in your Bible. And look at verse 7. And here is uh, the exhortation of the apostle. Remember them which have the rule over you, who have spoken unto you the word of God, whose faith follow, considering the end of their conversation or conduct. There are two things in that text. First is you are to have particular elders who rule over you, that you own as your own. You know, and this is where we have to deal with things today. It's not enough to say, oh, I listen to such and such a man's online ministry, or even go to churches visiting them weekly, but never actually come under the government or authority of any of them. No, we are to submit to particular elders, according to Hebrews 13, And what church membership acknowledges is this. This congregation's elders are mine. They are mine. And I will submit to them and they have a responsibility and a duty to me. I don't have any duty before God to any of you who come here if you're not a member of this congregation. That's really at the end of the day as simple as it is. Of course, I preach the word and you may receive that. But my obligation is to give an account before God for those who have come under the government of this particular local congregation. And that is a solemn thing. We are, each of us, to have elders care for our own soul. Christ expects it. And look at their work, which is the second thing you can note from this text. They speak to us the word of God. In other words, we cannot divorce the idea of hearing preaching from having the preacher shepherd us. Do you see that? This is a pernicious problem today. Uh, You hear, and I hear this. I hear Christians say this. I'm not a member of any church, but pastor so-and-so, I listen to his sermons, and so I'll consider him to be my pastor. But beloved, there is no such idea like that in the scripture. None at all. You must have elders you not only hear the word from, but also submit to, obey them, remember them, which have the rule over you who have spoken to you the word of God. And elders, elders here, we must be men worthy of following as examples. Uh, We are told whose faith follow, considering the end of their conduct. And so the life of elders must demonstrate they live the word of God. They are to be a living epistle. Paul said what? Be ye followers of me, even as I also am of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.1. 1. That's a heavy charge laid on church elders. And if it is your duty, beloved, to be under elders, it is our duty as elders to be worthy of that. And that's a solemn thing. And congregation, as we consider elections in the future for, for future elders, it, it is our duty to only elect men whose conduct reflects the Bible. Men who are unwavering in their commitment to the word and will submit to the word themselves. This also has other implications for you, beloved. It means that you must know your elders. You must also know their manner of life. A church whose elders are unknowable, where their manner of life is veiled behind meetings and maybe boardrooms, that is no church you should join in good conscience. Because you cannot know their manner of life. You cannot follow their faith. 
You cannot even consider the end of their conduct. Those are implications from this text. Now go down to verse 17 in Hebrews 13. It says, Obey them that have the rule over you and submit yourself, for they watch over your souls as they that must give account, that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you. So you are to submit to your own elders, beloved, and they are the ones who watch over your souls. They have a solemn duty. And we who shepherd must do it gravely. All of us who are elders will have to give an account before God for each of you. This is no rule of tyranny, in other words. Your elders are responsible to Christ for every one of you. There is a certain sobriety to the work. But also, I will say of our congregation that this text is true, that your willingness to receive shepherding in the word and in day-to-day life does fill us with joy. It's not a grievous thing because of how you respond to the ministry here, and we praise God for you all. And in verse 17, when it says elders must give an account, sometimes we just think of future accounting that we will give to Christ. But in biblical church government, elders give an account to higher courts of the church. We give an account for you, not just in the life to come, but in this one too. And you know this, if you're a member of the church, you have the right of appeal. Any action that we take or any doctrine we teach against the word of God can be appealed to the higher courts of presbytery and synod. You remember in Acts 15.1, men came into the church that taught Except ye be circumcised after the manner of Moses, you cannot be saved. So what? In verse 6, the apostles and elders came together to consider this matter. The, the elders of the broader church came together to put that teaching down. And they published a decree that those who troubled souls in this manner are in error. And that's the kind of oversight that we as presbyters, as elders have even in this life by biblical church government. That is Presbyterianism. Oversight by pluralities of elders and broader courts. I'll just say this. I've said it to you many times. I could never, ever be a member of a church that is not Presbyterian. It is not biblical, it is not right, and it is not safe. The news you might have seen recently has a scandal unfolding in the Southern Baptist Convention. They have hidden away for many, many years 700 men who are sex abusers. And they have been known by the denomination. And no action was ever taken by that denomination. Why? When the executive committee was asked to deal with them, what did they say? Our churches are autonomous and we cannot meddle with them. Beloved, could you ever imagine the apostles hearing a report of abuse in a church and say such a thing? By no means, friends. In Acts 15.24, they assembled because they heard that certain that went out from us have troubled you with words, subverting your souls. This kind of autonomy is completely unknown to the scriptures. Every elder must give an account to the broader church for their shepherding. The Southern Baptist Convention is hiding behind that immoral, independent form of church government. And really, in a lot of ways, they are being true to their doctrine, aren't they? They really have no authority to meddle with churches because they are autonomous. And the fruit of it is on display. Our hands are bound. Can you imagine that? What immorality is this? Our hands are bound. Our churches are autonomous. And that kind of church government is a denial as well that there is one body of Christ. On the other hand, you may know this, and we're going to have to deal with this some more in the summer at our synod meeting. Our denomination just finished a trial against a minister, a man who abused his authority to shield an abuser inside his congregation. We had a trial for him. We deposed him. He's no longer a minister. And that is what the church must do, hold elders accountable. And that is why, as well, no man who is unwilling to submit to authority should ever be an authority. You should never, ever elect a man to be an elder, support him for office, who is unwilling to submit to his own elders, because that man is a tyrant in the making. And so for that reason, I don't want to go into a whole sermon on Presbyterianism. Presbyterianism is by divine right, ordered by Jesus as head of the church. 
So in that then, though, that does bring us to a topic of why we need to be members of a church. We need to be under the authority of church elders for discipline. The church elders are given to reclaim wayward sinners. And solemnly, if a man, woman, child even, does not repent of grievous sin, there is the uh, ability to exercise excommunication. Very solemn thing where they are cast out of the body of Christ for doing what no Christian ought to do, and so declared as outside of Christ's body. For instance, you remember one of the famous cases in the Bible. In Corinth, a man had taken his father's wife. And so we read, In the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, when ye are gathered together and my spirit with the power of our Lord Jesus Christ, to deliver such an one unto Satan for the destruction of the flesh, that the spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord Jesus, and later put away from among you yourselves, that wicked person. That's excommunication. And even that, though, is for the sake of reclaiming the sinner, that they would be outside of the church and that the Lord would use that to cause them to come back in repentance. But how can you be put out of the body if there is no formal recognition you are in the body, that elders have the power to excommunicate? It's the same way in Matthew eighteen seventeen. We think of Matthew 18 with it comes to offenses in the church. Christ says, as discipline escalates, and if he shall neglect to hear them, tell it unto the church. But if he neglect to hear the church, let him be unto thee as an heathen man and a publican. Again, excommunication. It declares to the one who is offending, you have deceived yourself. You have deceived yourself into thinking you have any part in Christ. In reality, Christ says you are a heathen deceiving yourselves. So until you repent of your heinous sins, you are cast out of the church. And that mostly manifests in not being able to take of the Lord's Supper. Which is why, if we have the Supper coming up in a couple of weeks, we require church membership in a gospel-believing church before you can commune with us. To know you are under the oversight of church elders, a member in good standing. And if you're not under the authority of any elders, it's almost like a de facto excommunication. Because you have given no one authority to admit you or cast you out of the church. And that's a violation of Hebrews 13, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, and other texts. And the church has given this power to the church. uh, The Lord has given this power to the church, Matthew 18, 18. Verily I say unto you, and he's speaking to elders, Whatsoever ye shall bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever ye shall loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. That's a solemn thing. Let me impress again upon you why you should be under Presbyterian government. Because the problem is sometimes, sometimes, beloved, the church elders are at fault. And sometimes sinful men wield church power as tyrants. And they throw uh, lambs out of the church who should not be. And the church in Matthew 18 is broader than one congregation. It includes the greater body of elders in the denomination to watch over every congregation. And so if there is some disciplinary action that we undertake here, which is sinful, you go to the greater church. But you have no such protection outside of Presbyterianism. And we're thankful for that. Well, beloved, I know these are some heavy matters that I had to deal with, but they they demonstrate why membership is important. And every Christian, really, and this is the heart of the believer, and this has been something the Lord has worked in me years ago. Every Christian should desire elders who watch over their souls and make sure that they are walking the narrow path. And of course, they use the word in that and not their opinions, right, to guide you on the narrow path. But it is far better, beloved, to hear hard things this side of heaven and be reclaimed than at the throne of God to hear, Depart from me, for I never knew you, you worker of iniquity. Far better to be warned with tears by your elders that you are departing the good way and the narrow path than to hear it from Christ with finality on the day of judgment. But if that's the negative part, let's look at the positive aspects in Ephesians 4. You can go back there again in your copy of God's Word. And let's hear again from verses 12 to 15 to see how church officers bless us in other ways. They are given, in verse 12, for the perfecting of the saints, for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God unto a perfect man, unto the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ that we henceforth be no more children tossed to and fro 
and carried about with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and cunning craftiness whereby they lie in wait to deceive. But speaking the truth in love may grow up into him in all things, which is the head, even Christ. Through the work of these men, you are perfected, you are edified, and you are built up. You come together, you grow in the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God. And right there, that alone, right, the knowledge of the Son of God, that alone should make every true believer say, let me run to a place such as this, where I might know the knowledge of the Son of God. There is no greater knowledge than that. And I will leave behind spiritual immaturity. I I am guarded and protected from cunning wolves. These men spend their lives in the Scriptures to keep me from those wolves who come to take me away from Christ. They help me from being carried away from every wind of doctrine. Well, I'll have an opinion here and then an opinion here. And especially these days with social media, it seems like the number of crazy opinions on Scripture, are it's un, uncountable. And by speaking the truth in love, we might grow up together in Christ. And we see their work in another place, 2 Corinthians 1.24, when the apostle says, Not for that we have dominion over your faith, but are helpers for your joy. For by faith you stand. We are not meant to be lords over God's people, but we are to be helpers for your joy. That is the blessing of having your own elders that know you well, Christian. That's why we do home visits. That's why we have shepherding elders for every family. That's why we pray as elders for each of your individual needs every week. That's why these sermons are not random, but they have you in mind. Proverbs 27, 23 says, Be thou diligent to know the state of thy flocks and look well to thy herds. Elders, as under-shepherds, we must know you and we must care for you individually in the Lord. You're not all the same. You all have different needs and you have different graces and you have different wants and we are to know what those are. And so let me just say to you, uh, church members, if there's anything we can help you with, and we are blind to it, open our eyes by God's help. Know that we are your helpers for your joy. Ask how I could better and we can better pray for you, how I might better preach to you, and how we might better care for you and your family. And uh, understand that we are still mere men, so we need your help in that at times. And uh, in that, let me just say the negative side of this. You're not truly a member of a church, beloved, if your elders do not know you and don't care for you. Membership in such a church really is just a formality. And so this is the Lord's design for his church's government. We are members of local geographic churches with local elders, and these local churches come together to broader courts for oversight of individual congregations, and that is Presbyterianism. So we might ask, now, what is the mechanism the Bible might have for joining a church? And the Bible uses the ordinance that is called covenanting, which is what you're going to see after the sermon. You might remember Joshua 24, 24. The people said unto Joshua, the Lord our God will we serve and his voice will we obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. And it was prophesied in the Old Testament that when the New Testament comes, men would covenant to be the Lord's. Jeremiah 55, they shall ask the way to Zion with their faces thitherward, saying, Come and let us join ourselves to the Lord in a perpetual covenant that shall not be forgotten. And in the New Testament, in Philippians 2.11, we find our duty is to publicly confess Jesus Christ is Lord. And you know that Paul is simply citing Isaiah 45.23, and the Hebrew there makes this clear. That unto me every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear. And and the, the Hebrew there is take an oath. Take an oath. And so in Paul's mind, to confess Jesus is to swear an oath or take a covenant. And as prophesied then in Jeremiah 50, we pledge to join ourselves to the Lord by way of covenants. To acknowledge that this particular congregation is the congregation whose teaching and discipline will be under. And on the other side... Church officers in the church take a covenant to faithfully serve you uh, and uh, do so before God, that God is our witness in that. And the reason for this is solemn commitments in the Bible require public covenants. 
And we are to solemnly take them before God. That's why even weddings right, come with covenants. Malachi 2.14, yet is she thy companion and the wife of thy covenant. You see that? Why did you, uh, husbands and wives, take a covenant before God? Why did you have marriage vows? Why didn't you just say, let's just sign a piece of paper and now we're married? You take a commitment before God as your witness that I will love this person. Uh, The husband will serve her as Christ serves the church and the wife will cheerfully submit to her husband in return. Because these are things that we must more strictly bind ourselves to. So I'll preach on covenanting another time, but thought it was good for you to understand why church membership is done by way of covenanting. And so having seen our duty then to express our union with Christ's body locally to local elders, let us lastly consider the duties of church membership. And so in our remaining time, I want to focus on our duties one to another. So in Ephesians 4, verse 16, we hear again that from Christ the head, from whom the whole body fitly joined together and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body unto the edifying of itself in love. Now that is your duty as members of the church. From Christ the head to seek grace from God to edify one another in love. I'll say as your elders, it is a wonderful thing to see the care you have for each other in this congregation. I always hear you guys often check in with one another. Are you feeling okay? Can I deliver you some food if you're ill? Can I pray for you? You open up your soul troubles one to another, and not just to your elders, but to one another. And we have seen you support one another and care for one another. Because what did Jesus say? By this shall all men know that ye are my disciples, if what? Ye have love one to another, John 13, 35. You see, through all of the scriptures then, the idea that a Christian all by themselves can be all by themselves and they cannot, that they can exist independently of the body of Christ, not loving members of Christ's body, that concept is utterly alien to the word of God. The church is a community of loving disciples that care for each other and edify one another. When all men see love like this, love that is foreign, love that is alien in the world, they glorify God and are drawn to Jesus Christ. That's why he says, all men shall know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. And so we don't just bind ourselves in the covenant to the elders, but to one another. Which is why when the covenant is made, I will ask the members to take a vow to receive the new members as well. What did 2 Corinthians 8.5 say? But first gave their own selves to the Lord and unto us by the will of God. See, we give ourselves to the Lord and the natural consequence of it is that we give ourselves one to another. And we do that to bind ourselves to care for one another. 1 Corinthians 12, 25 through 27, I'll read it for you. That there should be no schism in the body, but that the members should have the same care one for another. And whether one member suffer, all the members suffer with it. Or one member be honored, all the members rejoice with it. Now ye are the body of Christ and members in particular. We are to have no schism, no parties, no divisions in the body. All members are called to care for one another. And the the text says, because we are one body, when one part suffers, all suffer. When one part is honored, all are to rejoice. Why? Because we are one body in Christ. You know, this this, uh, last week, I had such a crushing headache that it affected not just my head, but my whole body. And that's the analogy here, friends. That what happens to one part affects all the parts. When one suffers, all suffer. Because we are one body in Christ. And this cannot be divorced from the fact that this is the reality Christ himself experiences. Have you forgotten that? Right? In the road to Damascus, Saul, Saul, why hast thou persecutest me? Right? 
What happens to the body is happening to Christ, or he counts it rather as happening to him. What did he say in Matthew 25? For I was and hungered, and you gave me meat. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you took me in. Naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came unto me. Then shall the righteous answer him, saying, and these are the ones who are doing good deeds, right? Lord, When saw we thee hungered and fed thee, or thirsty and gave thee drink? When saw we thee a stranger and took thee in, or naked and clothed thee? Or when saw we thee sick or in prison and came unto thee? And the king shall answer and say unto them, Verily I say unto you, Inasmuch as ye have done it unto the least of these my brethren, ye have done it unto me. Which is why, friends, the body of Christ feels the suffering of its fellow members. Because the king is in solidarity with even the least of us. And to serve his body is to serve the king himself. To love his body, Christ counts it as love to himself. To honor part of the body, Christ says, is to honor himself. Serve the body and you serve Christ. And if you struggle to love your fellow members, then maybe this is the shift in perspective you need. I'm not even ultimately doing it for this person, but I am doing it because I love Christ. And whatever I render to this person, I am rendering it to the Lord. <clears throat> How can we have such, such relations, friends, unless we are in close communion one with another? And it is also your duty as members to endeavor to keep the unity of the body. In verses 2 and 3, with all lowliness and meekness, with long-suffering, forbearing one another in love, endeavoring to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. And, you know, we often don't appreciate this. But what did he do in verse 1 right before that? I beseech you. The apostle pleads. He says, by God's help, keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. This is so important to the apostle. And so we are, to, and it, because it is important to Christ, in another place, 2 Corinthians 5, we beseech you in Christ's stead, which is what he is doing. This is Christ pleading through his word. And so we are to be lowly and meek, beloved, patient and long-suffering with one another. This is the solemn duty every member has to another, to forbear one another in love. And it takes spiritual grace to keep the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. And you must seek God's help for it. Seek God's help in keeping our unity. When schism starts to break out, by God's help, you must go and try to resolve it because we are all going to face offenses in the church. We are still a society of sinners. And friends, sinners cause all kinds of problems and schism forms. And you're called to be long-suffering and forbearing. It is a sad and terrible joke that many churches have been split over the proposed color of the carpeting. A sad thing. What a sad denial that is of Christ's prayer, that we be one. Terrible that we cannot bear with one another over the color of carpeting, much less other offenses. So cover your brethren's faults in love, and if they do offend you, follow Matthew 18 and Luke 17. Speak to your brother or sister who has offended you in humility. Present the offense... And if they repent, you have won your brother. Praise the Lord. And if they do not listen, don't give up. Take another with you, as Christ says. And if they still will not listen, take it to the church, the elders of the church. And so I want to just implore you again. A proper understanding of how to deal with offenses leads to unity in the church. A lack of dealing with them leads to bitterness, resentment, and schism in the body. And friends, don't have an un- Um, scriptural view of the church this side of glory one day offenses will be done as the invisible church is glorified in heaven but that day has yet to come that is why christ in wisdom has given you a chapter like matthew 18 he gives you this way of unity well members of drpc let me just then exhort you as we receive these new members it is our duty to care for them to love them and cherish them as part of Christ's body. We are all bound together in a mystical union by the Holy Spirit in Christ. So we are to care for them. We are to nourish them and edify them in Christ's love and look after them. And so, 
my beloved brethren, I hope you understand the basis of church membership today. This could be a whole series. And if you are not a member of a church, I pray you see it is your duty before God to be part of one. And don't delay or hasten in that. To not be under the care of Christ's church puts you in a dangerous place. Your soul is at stake, and that is not hyperbole. For our text says, without the church's protection, you are a danger of being tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine by the slight of men and their cunning craftiness who lie in wait to deceive. You are in danger of going astray from the chief shepherd, which is Christ, and you do not gain the benefits of the body edifying you and uh, nourishing you and caring for you in love. Our Lord Jesus Christ suffered grievously to give us a church to grant us such blessing and protection. In verses 8 through 11, when he ascended, he sent church officers as gifts to bless and guard his church. Did he give gifts for no purpose? Are they optional for your life? Bless the Lord for his body as a society of love, protection, and peace. Unbeliever, if you are here among us, this is what the kingdom of God is, a place of eternal love in Christ. Enter this kingdom by faith in the Lord and be forgiven of your sin and then join a local church. And may you in the church endeavor to keep the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. Care for one another and see the church as a place to enjoy the means of grace until you all come in the unity of the faith, of the knowledge of the Son of God, unto a perfect man and to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. Christ will do it, for he is faithful to his promise. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. Our holy God, we thank you and bless you that Christ truly has not left us orphans as he promised. He has given us the spirit. He has made us one body. And so we thank you and bless you for that, that there are men who are called to give account for our souls For as you say, our souls are precious in your sight. Our Lord Jesus Christ has died for those who uh, are the elect of God and has given them uh, care. He takes orphans even and puts them in families. And so we thank you for this great truth. Father, we pray that if any here have heard the word, that the word would not not, uh, uh, leave them unaffected, that they would leave this place glorifying Christ. And if they don't yet believe the gospel, Today would be the day of salvation for them. And if there are those here who do not know the joy of being part of the church, then we pray that they would know it today. Father, we thank you for the word of God, which is able to make one wise, and we pray you would bless the preaching of it now. In Jesus' name, amen.